this week in particular we're looking at what he says to our husbands. But before we read what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to turn first of all to the prophecy of Ezekiel. We'll be looking at just how this passage in Ezekiel links with what it says in Ephesians. But listen to this from Ezekiel chapter 16. And reading from the first verse. Let's hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in a cloth. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. As you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked to you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. And then we turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and we pick up from verse 21, where the apostle says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Amen. We give thanks to God for these readings from his holy word. Heavenly Father, as we now approach your word as part and parcel of our worship tonight, we pray as the psalmist prayed, keep us from hidden errors and willful sins. May our speech, may our thinking find favor in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when you come to think of it, there is a certain irony, isn't there, in the fact that the clearest teaching on marriage in the Bible comes from a bachelor, from the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, Paul was not married. 
but he can teach about marriage, not because he was necessarily married himself, but really because anybody, anybody who understands the gospel, anybody who understands the implications of a gospel-centered life will have insight into not only God's intention for marriage, but God's intention for how we conduct all of our relationships. If you have a grasp of what the gospel really means, then you too will have a grasp of how the Lord wants us to relate to one another. Because being a Christian is something that impacts on every aspect of our lives. It's not just something for Sundays, is it? It's not just something that we do in church. We cannot confine our faith to the private sphere. When Jesus becomes Lord, Lord of our lives, he becomes Lord of every aspect of our life. And so it should come as no surprise to us then that the scriptures have something to say about the most important relationships in our lives. We should not be offended by anything that is said here. We should not have the attitude that this is a private aspect of my life and religion shouldn't be poking its nose into this area of my life. Jesus is Lord of all. Now from chapter 5 verse 21 through to chapter 6 verse 9, the apostle is giving directions First of all, to husbands and wives, then to parents and children, then to masters and slaves. He is saying, this is how you should live as a Christian husband, as a Christian wife. This is how to be a Christian parent and a Christian child. This is how to be a Christian master and a Christian slave. Because being a Christian makes a difference. It makes a difference to everything. And if you listened in last week, we were saying that we ought not to sever these verses from what has gone before about practical holiness. These directions from the Apostle are part and parcel of his teaching on a Spirit-filled life. And that is why I've actually entitled these sermons The Spirit-Filled Marriage. This is what a marriage looks like when the husband and the wife are consciously under the control of the Holy Spirit. This is how a husband walks wisely, how a, a, a wife demonstrates that she is light in the Lord. And to stray from this, to stray from this pattern, is, in the words of chapter 4, verse 30, to grieve the Holy Spirit. And we can see the same holes for parents and children, for masters and for slaves. Now, Paul deals with marriage first because it is the fundamental relationship. This is the relationship which is the foundation upon which society is built. And more than any other relationship, marriage reflects the relationship between God and his people. We see that in the Old Testament, and it's an idea that's carried into the New Testament. The Lord Jesus himself sometimes described himself as the bridegroom, didn't he? In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist comes, he compares himself to the best man at a wedding. Christ, he says, is the bridegroom. I'm the best man, and the bride belongs to the bridegroom. So, in talking about marriage, Paul is drawing heavily on this comparison. This comparison between God and his relationship with his people. So he says here in Ephesians 5, verse 32, this is a profound mystery. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So let's be aware of this. That we do not learn lessons about Christ and the church by observing the institution of marriage. It's the other way around. We learn about marriage by observing Christ and his love for his church. Now last week we homed in on verses 21 through to 24 and the key word there is submission. 
And I was saying that we have a very negative attitude towards the concept of submission, don't we? We only submit to somebody because they have gained power over us. We don't like it, but we don't have any choice. They're stronger than us. Or they've argued a better case than we have. Or they've got more money than us. The one who submits is the loser. That tends to be our attitude. And that's why there's so much hostility to what Paul says here in verse 22 about wives. Wives, submit to your husband, even as unto the Lord. And even as Christians, we might feel uncomfortable with this idea. Because, well, we know, we know, don't we, that, that, that this very text has often been used to justify dominating and oppressing women. And Paul might seem to give us a get-out clause in verse 21 when he says, well, we should submit to one another. And that has often been interpreted as meaning that there ought to be mutual submission between husband and wife, mutual submission across the board. Submit to one another, says Paul. But I did point out last time that that is not what Paul is saying because wives are told to submit to their husbands, but we don't see it vice versa. No more than parents are told to obey their children or masters are told to obey their slaves. The point in verse 21 is that within society, there are those who deserve our submission. Soldiers. Soldiers must submit to their superior officers. Citizens must submit to the government. Church members are to submit to the church leadership. Wives are to submit to their husbands. We give submission to those to whom submission is owed. To whom it is due. And in verse 23 here, Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, just as the church submits to her Lord with a trust that is willing to follow him wherever he leads us, a wife should willingly submit to her husband without any fear that this will demean her or stifle her personality. Because the motivation is always Jesus. It's always Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is one of the ways a wife demonstrates that she belongs to Jesus, that she is willing to submit to her husband. Well, now we move on to what Paul says about husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wives. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because if the apostle was simply giving us the flip side of wives being submissive to their husbands, he would have said, and husbands rule your wives. That would have been a flip side. But he doesn't say that. He says, husbands, love your wives. Actually, three times he says that. Verse 25, verse 28, and verse 33, love your wife. Now you might say, now come on. That's a rather obvious thing to say, isn't it? Husbands love your wives. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have got married if we didn't love, love our wives. We wouldn't have married them in the first place. Husbands love your wife. Interesting as well, isn't it? Paul doesn't say to the wives, love your husbands. I think because he doesn't need to say that to the wives. We should bear in mind that in the ancient world, though, love was actually at the very bottom of the list of reasons why you would get married. Alliances between families was a more common reason for getting married. Which actually makes what Paul says here even all the more radical. He's not writing primarily to 21st century people. 
He's writing to people in the first century where love was not the primary reason for getting married. So that then reminds us or draws our attention to this fact that Paul was not talking about love merely as an emotion. And he's certainly not reducing love simply to sexual intercourse. He is talking about love as an action. Love as an act of the will. Love is a verb. It's a doing word, isn't it? And we see that's how Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, if you think of it. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. It's hard, isn't it? When you should have been at that party 10 minutes ago. But she doesn't feel quite right in that dress. Well, she'll be out of sorts for the whole night. So love patiently waits while she tries on something else. Love is kind, says Paul. Thoughtful. Complimentary. Encouraging. Love is never rude. Oh, how awful to hear a husband criticise his wife in public. Mock her for being stupid. Pass a remark about her weight. Love is never rude. Love is not self-seeking. It's not about me and my likes or my dislikes and where I want to go and what I want to do. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. This, my friends, is true love. Love in action. That cup of tea in bed and the bunch of flowers and the box of chocolates, the surprise reservation at a restaurant, these are the least of it. Love, true love, is a seam of gold that weaves its way throughout a marriage. And it should be the husband who is giving the lead. Well, we ask ourselves, is there an example for us to follow? Is there a model of love like this for us to follow, to imitate? What does Paul do? Once again, he takes us to Jesus. Takes us straight to the Lord Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, my men here, husbands, you husbands, you should be shaking in your boots when you hear this. We should be trembling at the thought of this. Because how did the Lord Jesus love the church? How did the Lord Jesus love his bride? He died for her. He died for her. He gave himself up for her. For his bride, he left the splendor of heaven. For his bride, he was laid as a baby in an animal feeding trough. For his bride, he joined that queue of repenting sinners anxious to be baptized by John in the Jordan. For his bride, he starved for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and was mercilessly tempted by Satan. For his bride, he endured years of abuse and misunderstanding as he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. For his bride, he had no place to lay his head. For his bride, he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. For his bride, he broke bread in the upper room. For his bride, he was wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over what lay ahead for him. For his bride, he surrendered himself to his enemies and was convicted on the evidence of lying witnesses. For his bride, he was beaten, he was spat upon, he had a crown of thorns pressed down upon his brow. For his bride, he carried that wooden beam to Golgotha, so weak he could barely walk. For his bride, he was stripped naked. And for his bride, nails were hammered through his hands. And for his bride, he was lifted up to die. And there was his broken-hearted mother, sobbing before his very eyes, and the scoffing of his enemies ringing in his ears. For his bride. And for his bride he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
for his bride, he whispered, it is finished. It is finished. And what did this bride look like? Was this bride a beauty queen? Was this bride some supermodel? Ezekiel's description of Israel is more like it. Ezekiel pictures Israel as an abandoned baby girl, unwanted, exposed, left to die. And he says, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up for a church that was covered in sores from head to foot. No cosmetics could cover her scabs. No plastic surgery could improve her looks. But he loved her. Still, he loved her. He knows every imagination of our thoughts. That they are only bent towards evil. But he still loves us. He knows the very worst about his bride. Nothing new to discover about her. And yet he remains in love with her. Nothing can quench his determination to bless his bride, to love his bride, to give to her every spiritual blessing. He ordains that all things should be ours. He works everything for our good, doesn't he? He bestows the Spirit without measure. And he says, he is preparing a place for his bride, for his church, for us. A place so beautiful, so wonderful, that even the biblical writers struggle to find the words that accurately describe this place. My friends, this is love so amazing, so divine, that demands my life, my soul, my all. And Paul says, Ian, this is the love with which you are to love your wife. This is what he says. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's why I said, all of us here who are men, who are husbands, should tremble and the very thought of what he says to us. Who is sufficient for these things? And Paul goes on to say that just as our Lord Jesus is the model of how we should love our wives, his goal for the church gives us our goal for our wives. It says in verse 26, that Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. To make her holy. Now, to be holy, first and foremost, means that we are set apart for God. Just as a marriage is an exclusive relationship between the man and the woman, so the relationship with Christ and his church is to be exclusive, set apart. And again, Paul says to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. 
The theologians call this positional holiness. That is our position before God, our status in God's sight, is that we are holy. Set apart from him, exclusively set apart from him. And then from this position of holiness comes a progressive holiness, or what we call sanctification, living the holy life, a life that reflects the Lord Jesus more and more and more. We are cleansed, and the water that cleanses us is the word of God. It's as we allow God's word to shape us, to shape our thinking, to shape our behavior, that we then progress in the faith. Till the day comes when, like a bride walking down the aisle, stunningly beautiful, the church will be given to Christ, radiant, glorious, perfect, flawless. John Stott says, then the church's true nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement. Friends, we fail the Lord with our pride and with our selfishness, with our quick temper, and we ask ourselves, am I ever going to get right? Am I, ever, am I ever going to get it right? Am I ever going to even live one day when I'm right before the Lord? Well, no, we will never get it right. But the Lord Jesus will. He will. And, and so in the case of the church, it's not the bride who is applying the makeup and the blusher and the lipstick and the mascara. It's the groom who's doing it. It's the groom who is making the bride beautiful. And actually, Ezekiel gives us the same picture. We read it early on in Ezekiel 16. He says, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect declares the sovereign Lord, the splendor I had given you, declares the Lord to Israel. That, my friends, is the husband's goal for his wife. We look at some women, don't we? And their clothes are so old and faded that they'll soon be back in fashion. And she's tired and she's weary and her hair's a mess. And we say, she's let herself go. But she hasn't let herself go. Her husband has let her go. Her husband has not been loving her as he ought to. Her husband has been doing nothing to build up her self-esteem. But the more he loves her, the more lovely the wife will become. A worn-out wife speaks of a selfish, unloving husband. And that is particularly disgraceful in a Christian marriage. Every marriage, every marriage reflects Christ's love for the church. And if the husband is not loving his wife as Christ loves the church, he is communicating a wrong message. He is communicating a message that Christ does not love his church. If a husband is unfaithful, or if he's harsh, or if he's irresponsible, or negligent, then he is in effect dragging the name of the Lord Jesus through the mud. If a husband loves his wife, treasures his wife, makes sacrifices for his wife, where he is loyal and tender and affectionate to his wife, then that man, that husband, is a faithful witness to Christ 
the bridegroom. So Paul says here in verse 28, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Might seem a wee bit of a come down, going from the lofty heights of Christ's love for the church to a man's love for his own body. But if you think about it, Paul is really just applying that golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is a husband's nearest neighbor? It's his wife. It's his wife. So how incongruous it is for a man to be kind and generous to all and sundry, going the extra mile, never refusing a request except for his wife. But that's not unknown, is it? That's not unknown. And I have to confess, it's a danger that we who are in the ministry face. We have to be very beware of this. We have to be aware of this. When you're a minister, you're supposed to be Mr. Nice Guy to all and sundry. It's part of your job description. You have to be nice to everybody. But how many a clergy wife suffers from neglect? And how many a clergy wife suffers when her husband comes home and takes off the mask and reverts to being himself? Well, when you're hungry, you're going to eat. And if you're cold, you're going to turn up the heat and if you're dirty, you take a shower, and if you fall ill, you're going to call 999. If you're tired, you go to sleep. We look after our bodies. As Paul says, no one has ever hated his own body, but feeds it and cares for it. So a husband is to care for his wife with the same attention as he cares for himself. Is she tired? Is she feeling low? Is she in pain? Is she spiritually drained? We who are husbands need to be aware of our needs and love her. Also, Peter says the same thing. First uh, Peter 3, verse 7. It's not just Paul who says this. First Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Be considerate of your wife's ideas and feelings, of her needs and her desires. Do everything you can to understand her. Your wife should be your specialist subject and mastermind. She is the topic of your PhD thesis. When decisions are to be made, you think about her before you think of yourself. Treat her with respect. Admire her the way God made her. Compliment her. Don't criticize her. Don't belittle her. Build her up. And of course, it is a fact that most wives are physically weaker than their husbands and emotionally more fragile as well. But as the Welsh preacher, Jeff, Jeffrey Thomas, he puts it very picturesquely. Listen to this, he says. A plastic bowl is less fragile than a piece of antique Wedgwood china. But which is the more valuable? The very fact that the china is fragile means that you treat it with greater care. So we remember that whatever the differences are between us, the most important thing between a Christian husband and wife is that we are heirs together in the gracious gift of life. We're both children of the living God. Joint heirs with Christ. We are members of his body. Let me just make a couple of concluding remarks. Ideally, if we'd had the time, I would like to have preached the whole passage, verse 21 through to 33, as one sermon. But uh, it'd be too long. Taking the wife's responsibility separately from the husband's, I hope last week it didn't sound too lopsided. And I hope that tonight I've restored the balance. Surely this is the kind of man that any woman would gladly submit to. This is a man that she knows loves her enough to die for her. 
And boy, oh boy, what kind of world would we be living in if all husbands accepted this calling? Would there be any need for the women's liberation movement? Would there be any women struggling to build up, to, to, to bring up children on their own? Would there be any women suffering from self-esteem issues? I don't think so. And I want this to finish. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to give some advice. Advice to the unmarried. To any lad or lass here or watching who hope to get married one day. And I would say to the boys, get into training now. Start now to learn to love your future wife. The way you treat all the women in your life now, your mother, your sisters, your cousins, your friends, the way you treat them now reveals the kind of husband that you will be. Now, obviously, you cannot love uh, them with the same intensity as you'll love your wife, but the germ of that should be there. Get into training now. And actually, do not marry any girl that you are not prepared to love with that kind of devotion. That you're not prepared to love as Christ loved his church. And to the girls, to the women, I would say, don't settle for anything less. Do not commit yourself to any man who shows no sign of being willing to love you more than he loves himself. And to all of us, to all of us, let the Lord Jesus Christ be our model, our motivation in everything that we do. We keep our eyes fixed on him, fixed on him. And I can't help but think of the words of Samuel Rutherford comparing his passion for the Lord Jesus with the passion of a bride and a groom. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together. The Lord and our God, we are not unaware, we are not ignorant of the high and holy calling it is to be married, to be a husband, to be a wife. And nor are we ignorant of our own inadequacies, Lord. But we do have our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is our model. He is our motivation. And it is our longing. It is our longing to love one another as he has loved us. So we pray humbly for the gift of your Holy Spirit to enable us to live and to love as we are called to do, that the world may see that in Jesus Christ there is a love, a love divine, which excels and supersedes all other loves. And this we pray in his holy name. Amen.